We are continuing our series of the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, every Sunday, uh, I'm going to share a story with you guys of a man or a woman in our church who recognizes that they are on mission. They're joining God in this mission. We have a God who is missional, and we're joining with him. And, and this is from uh, a woman in our church who is a teacher in the Chicago public school system. Yeah, y'all know who you are. Actually, my heart is feeling burdened to pray for you today. And you'll see why after I read this. Okay, so here, this is what she says. She says, hi, Pastor Peter. Thank you for this morning. If you've noticed my Facebook updates for the last two weeks, it's been about school and how hard my class is this year. In my nine years of teaching, this has been the toughest group behavior-wise and also academically. I was at my wit's end, and seriously, I hated my job, and it's only been two weeks. I tried to have a better attitude going into work every day, but once I got in, my kids started going all crazy on me, and they all went out the window. I also started complaining in my head that if I wasn't teaching in the city, then life would be much easier. The suburban kids are better behaved, smarter, have home support, and so many more resources at school. I wouldn't have to deal with the majority of the crap that's thrown my way. This was the first year ever that I struggled to love my students. Chicago public school teachers, can you relate a little bit? Yeah, yeah, some of you are nodding your heads. Then God reminded me today why I'm in this world. And I love the way she put it. She didn't say, God reminded me today why I have this job. Why I'm, she said, why I'm in this world. He reminded me of the reasons why he called me to teach in the city. It's because these kids need a teacher who sees them as Jesus sees them. To love them as Jesus loves them. All the reasons for my complaint were the reasons why he convicted me to teach in the city. God showed me that I need to take my eyes off of myself and focus them on him and the mission he has given me. I exist to be Jesus to the students that are in my classroom. And I can go into work tomorrow with renewed passion, knowing that I'm here for them. That's, it's not about me and how hard my life is, but to love them as Jesus loves them. Isn't that great? I'm always amazed by God's goodness. I'm tearing up even as I write this email, knowing how much God loves me. I'm thankful that God is so sovereign that even though I've experienced it many times, I'm always so amazed by his timing. I was losing my mind, but he loves me enough to encourage me, renew me right when I needed it. I totally needed to be reminded why I'm here. What about you? Are you clear about your mission? And why God has you on the face of this earth? Can you get up tomorrow morning and whatever it is that you do and whoever you do it with, it's not just about the job. Yes, do your job well and do your job to the best of your ability and be a witness, but that God has you there because you might be the only Jesus that some of them will come across. So I pray for you. I pray for you throughout this week. Teachers, 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 I'm going to do it. Chicago Public School teachers, can you just stand from where you're at? Y'all don't want to stand, you don't have to. But see, stand from where you're at. Stand where you're at. Stand from where you're at. Stand from where you're at. Come on, come on. Stand from where you're at. Stand from where you're at. No, 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 no. Stand, Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. Stand up. We, we, we want to pray for you. Matt, we were told there's 35 school teachers in our church, 35. 
according to our surveys. There's 35 of you. So many of you are not here. It's because they're probably at home just burnt out and tired. <laughs> I am sleeping. I ain't coming to church today. I want to pray for you. Pray with me. God, we, we pray for these teachers. As they get up tomorrow morning, and before they walk out that door, remind them why they're there. Remind them why they're there. And strengthen them and enable them by the power of the Holy Spirit to do that, what they know they can't do on their own. They can't love those students on their own. They can't care for them on their own. They don't have what it takes, but you do. So God, you work in and through them. That they might be the best possible teachers that those kids will ever come across this year. We lift these men and women up unto you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 16. Let's go. Verse 13. Acts chapter 16. Verse 13. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read like a humongous section. And you all know me. I'm not going to get through this today. I'm going to get it through. I'm going to get through it in two parts. Okay. Just two parts. That's it. Just two parts. I promise. Just two parts. Acts chapter 16, verses 13, all the way to verse 34. All right. And the reason is because this is all one section. Luke meant to write this in one section. So we need to preach it in one section. Here we go. Verse 13. So on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Verse 19. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. You know, this, just stop right there. Just imagine the scene. They're bleeding. They're bleeding. Their backs are ripped. They're bleeding feet in stocks, and they're, and they're singing, and they're worshiping, and people are listening. By the way, uh, non-believers, non-Christians, they're always listening. They're always observing, particularly to see how you and I as Christians handle suffering. 
I've said this before. There's no greater witness sometimes than non-Christians seeing Christians handle suffering and hardship. By the way, they're always watching, always, and always listening. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, whoa, 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 don't harm yourself, man, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God and his whole family. Um, I'm really excited about this passage and preaching this passage for the next two weeks. Um, We've been talking about the book of Acts and the church and the movement of God. And, and, and you know, it, it's funny because I hear Christians, I hear Christians who are out and sharing and declaring the gospel in their schools, neighborhoods, so on and so forth here in Chicago. And I hear a lot of people say, you know, it's so hard to just talk about Jesus. People are resistant. People don't, you know, people are offended. They find the claims of Jesus ridiculous, so on and so forth, you know. Anybody experience that? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's a common experience unless you live in the Bible Belt. Bible Belt, a little different, but if you live in Chicago, experience that. But what's funny is this. Did you know that the first Christians, early Christians, experienced a similar thing? They were in a culture that was just as hostile, just as sort of, you know, uh, anti, if you will, to the Christian claims. For example, the Roman, Greco-Roman world was incredibly polytheistic. We'll come to that in, you know, Acts 17. I mean, there are gods all over the place. People had gods all over the place. And so Christianity comes along and says, Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. People are like, please. What? In a culture that was hostile to the Christian faith, Christian faith exploded because the case for Christianity was made with such conviction and so many people came to believe that the witness and testimony changed that brutal society. And they did this, by the way, with that military might and political power. And the message that Christians came and proclaimed, check this out, very important, was a message of transformation. Not Moral reformation. Understand the difference, please. Christians did not come preaching moral reformation. Many of you sitting here today, Christian or not, you think Christianity is about moral reformation. That is, Jesus comes into your life and you become a better person. You become a good person. You become a nicer person. That's not what Christianity proclaimed. Christianity didn't go around saying, get Jesus into your life and you become a better person, nice person, a good person. Christianity is that Jesus comes into your life and he changes you radically inside out. Transformation, conversion. Christianity is about, not about making you know, bad people into good people, good people into better people. Christianity is about making dead people into living people. Amen? That's Christianity. So Christianity comes along and people become radically converted. So much so that the biblical writers had a terminology for it. They said it's like being born again. Have you ever been in a birth? Holy cow. It's a quite a whoa! It's the biblical, right? It's like, it's like that. It's like being born again. It's that, it's that traumatic. It's that, it's powerful. It's like, whoa. 
It's not, oh my gosh, you're such a bad guy. You're a little better now, you know? You're a good guy. You're, uh, Christianity, radical conversion. Now check this out. So the book of Acts, more than any other book in the New Testament, right? Luke paints pictures of conversion. We find more conversion stories in the book of Acts than any other book in the New Testament. And here in Acts 16, Luke intentionally picks out three conversion stories to say, let me tell you what Christianity's like and how it's different from moral reformation. And the conversion stories are of Lydia, a slave girl without a name, and a Roman jailer. All right? So we're going to look at these conversion stories more in detail this week and next week. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. Broad general principles that we'll kind of dig into for the next two weeks about this passage and what it teaches us. Number one, and I put up some sermon points up there. You know, last week I had a guy come with like a little notepad, you know, and and it was like filled with like three pages of like meticulous notes. He's like, let me get this straight. So what is, and he's repeating stuff back to me and I'm going, did I say that? I say that, you know, (laughs) such bad memory. I preach and then I forget, right? So I said, you know what I'm going to do? Because he's asking me all these, I'm just going to put them up there, okay? What I think is important. Number one, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. What Luke is trying to say through Acts 16 is that, listen, there is no type of person that the gospel is more natural to. Okay? There's no type of person that the gospel is more natural to. For example, Luke does this on purpose. There's no racial type. There's no racial type that the gospel is more natural to. For example, Lydia was from Thyatira. Thyatira means that she probably looked Middle Eastern. The slave girl is, is a slave, so she could have been from anywhere, right? She could have been from anywhere. And, 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 and the jailer is a Roman, which means he was European. So here's, we have racial types. We have Lydia, Middle Eastern. We have slave girl, could be from anywhere. And we have the Roman jailer. And Luke is trying to say, there's no racial type that the gospel is more natural to. There's no culture that the gospel is more native to. Christianity is for everyone. Just a little side note. Think about this with me. Christianity is the only faith religion, if you in the world, if you will, that's never been dominated by one part of the world. Islam, demographically and geographically, it's been primarily centered around the Middle East. Buddhism, primarily where? Asia, right? Hinduism, primarily India, and so on and so forth. But Christianity, this is so interesting, if you want to know, it starts out as a Middle Eastern religion, right? In Jerusalem with Jews, and then it moves over to the Mediterranean, Hellenistic world, right? And then it goes to Europe, and then it goes to North America. It's a movement. And now, I'm so excited to say this, right now, Christianity is flourishing, exploding where? In South America, Africa, Asia. There are more Christians in South America, Africa, and Asia than all of Western Europe and North America combined. That's great news. Amen? God is at work all over the world. Why? Why is gospel like that? Why is the gospel? Because there's no culture, ethnicity, race that the gospel is more natural to. There's no type. And that was a powerful force for Christianity. It goes forth and it says, it's for everyone. And when you look carefully at the story, and we'll look at this again more, uh, further this week and next week, there's no type of person or personality. The gospel is both for the rich and poor. The gospel is both for men and women. The gospel is both for educated and uneducated. The gospel, is, the gospel is both for, check this out, moral types and immoral types. The gospel is for moral types. Lydia is a God-fearer, worshiper of God, and I'll talk about it in a moment. But the gospel is for everybody because we have a slave girl. I mean, she's demon-possessed. And then you have the Roman jailer who's an ex-GI. 
You know, he's a blue-collar military guy. He's indifferent, you know. He thinks church is for wusses, you know. <laughs> you don't want to go to church because church is full of wusses. Gospel is for everyone. Here's what this means. Here's what this means. Check this out. If you're not a Christian today and you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not the Christian type. I'm not the moral type. I'm not the believing type. I'm not, the, you know, the faith kind of type. I'm not. The Bible comes and says, uh, you can't get off that easy because there's no type a person that the gospel is more natural to. But I'm not the moral. You know, I'm not the moral type. I'm not the good kind of type. You know, the Christian type. Uh, you couldn't be more wrong. There's no such thing as a Christian type. No such thing as a Christian type. Gospel is for everyone. Amen? And if you're a Christian this morning, I need to talk to you. Because you and I think there's a type of Christians. You and I, if we struggle with this, if you and I actually think that we're looking around and we think, you know, that, that kind of a person could be a Christian, that kind of a person is more likely to become a Christian, then we totally miss what the gospel is about. We totally don't even get it. And when somebody comes and says, you know, I don't know if he or she could become, because I don't know if they're the type, I don't know if they're the kind of people that would become a Christian. I just want to go to them, and you were? Oh, you're, you're, I know, you're wonderful raw material, and I'm so glad you're with us. <laughs> there's no type of a Christian. There's no type, personality, so on and so forth, that the gospel is more natural to. Matter of fact, if you are sitting here, and I need to speak to you, if you're sitting here going, I'm losing hope for her, I'm losing hope for them, I don't know if them, if you actually feel and think that way, it shows that you don't understand that we are sinners saved by grace and grace alone. Absolutely without hope until God came and reached out to us. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm going to stand on my soapbox for a little bit, if you don't mind. If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. You know why? Because you need to hear me say this. Christians are no better than non-Christians. Christians are no better. Matter of fact, if you're a Christian and you're sitting here today and you actually think you're better than non-Christians, it shows that you don't understand the gospel. Because a Christian who's been truly converted and understands the gospel realizes that we are utterly and totally lost without the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That we deserve eternal separation from God. And unless Jesus Christ came as the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us, that we would be utterly and totally lost. But we Christians, we don't get it. That's why we pretend that we're more moral and more devoted than everybody else. Isn't that true? We love to pretend that we're more moral and more devoted. Isn't that true? We're more moral. That's why we got to picket stuff. We're more devoted. That's why we're going to judge you. We're going to condemn you. That's why we're going to thumb our noses down at you. And despite all the evidence and data to the contrary, it's what the church loves to preach on. Be more moral. Be more devoted. It's what we write. It's what we put on our T-shirts, put on our bumper stickers. We're better than y'all. <laughs> that's not the gospel. Matter of fact, that's the enemy of the gospel. That is the enemy of the gospel. The gospel, Jesus Christ, comes along and says, Jesus saves Saves from what? From us and our inability to be as moral as we want to be and our inability to be as devoted as we want to be. Oh, I don't know. The Bible says, be holy as, as I am holy. Does anybody else struggle with that one? 
Little bit, tiny little bit, you, me, maybe, maybe. I struggle with that one. Be as holy as God, I'm holy. I struggle with that one a little bit, you know what I'm saying? But that's what makes the teachings of Jesus just so wild and crazy. Jesus comes along and he says, look, if religion has a motto, it's this. I obey, therefore I'm accepted, right? So in religion, how good you are, morality and moral observance and the, the list of things, that's the means of salvation. Jesus Christ comes along and says, that might be religion. It's got nothing to do with the gospel. Religion comes and says, we are better than everybody else and everybody be damned. The gospel, Jesus Christ comes and says, no, you love the Muslim. You serve the Muslim and you die for the Muslim if you need to. No, no, you love the Jew. You serve the Jew and you die for that Jew if you need to. No, you love the Hindu. You, 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 you feed the Hindu. You open your home to the Hindu and you die for the Hindu. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ comes and says, nobody, not a single person here, leans against the cross, points our fingers and judges who comes and who doesn't. We all kneel before the cross and we say, there's room for anyone. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for every one. Jesus was a crazy man. Comes along and says, love your enemies. Come on. Anybody can love their friends. Even killers do that. Love your enemies. Jesus Christ comes along and says, I didn't come preaching religion, religion, moral observance as a means of salvation. I came preaching the gospel. Gospel. Amen? Gospel. Secondly, check this out. Acts 16 also teaches us that the gospel brings reconciliation. The gospel empowers reconciliation. There's no greater unifying factor on the face of the earth than the gospel. There's no greater unifying factor on the face of the earth. Look, I'm not saying that we Christians have done it right. Matter of fact, hello, confession time. We Christians have not done this right. Us as church, we've perpetuated racism and injustice. We haven't been very good witness to how the gospel brings races and cultures together. But let me show you, because this text shows us how the gospel, what the gospel can do if we draw on its power. There's an ancient prayer that Jewish men pray. Do you remember the prayer? It's a little controversial. Jewish men would get up in the morning and they would pray this prayer. Devout Jews. Oh God, I thank thee that I was not born a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Seriously. All Jewish men pray that. And so here's Paul, right? He's the Pharisee of Pharisees, which means he got up every single day, every single day praying that prayer. Oh, God, I thank you that I wasn't born a woman. I wasn't born a slave. I wasn't born a Gentile. And the first three conversions in the church of Philippi are a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? (laughs) Yes, he does. Yes, he does. What could empower a guy like Paul who grew up every day of his life saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. The first three people from this church of Philippi that he gives his life to is the pair of people he despised, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile, right? The gospel brings reconciliation. And again, I'm not trying to mitigate the failures of the Christian community to draw on the power of the gospel that unifies people across these racial barriers. But you know what? Can you be honest? As bad as we are and as bad as we've been at this, I guarantee you, if if you've been a Christian for even five years, I guarantee you, you've got somebody in your life right now as a friend that if it wasn't for Christ, you wouldn't have crossed those barriers. And you wouldn't have ever wanted to know them. You wouldn't have given them the time of day. 
and you know it. But in Christ, they're now your brother. They're now your sister. And they've been brought into this family of God. Brought into this family of God. The gospel brings reconciliation. Do you know why the gospel is so powerful? Because apart from Christ, it is a natural bent of the human heart to disdain somebody. Isn't that true? Apart from Christ and understanding of salvation by grace and grace alone, it is the natural bent of the human heart to disdain somebody. Let me give you an example. If you're a Democrat, apart from Christ, you're going to disdain Republicans. You're liberal, you're going to disdain conservatives. By the way, if you want to check, you know, whether Christ is really, if you're a liberal, just sit and watch Fox for like an hour. And vice versa, if you're a conservative, watch like MSNBC. You know, I can even tell you the shows to watch, but you see what I'm saying. If your identity is found in, I'm liberal, then you're going to disdain conservatives. If your identity is found in political party, you're going to disdain somebody who's not. If your identity is grounded and founded in your ethnic makeup, you're going to disdain people that you feel superior to or people who are mean to you. But in Christ, he levels that disdain thing of our hearts because we come across and we say, oh, I am saved by grace and grace alone. How am I going to go about disdaining somebody thinking I'm better? Cross levels that. Lastly, as we go on, the gospel can't be canned. The gospel can't be canned. I'm talking about the approach here and how the gospel is shared. See how they're utterly different from these three people? And we're going to see this today. You know what Paul does with Lydia? He talks to her. Rational discourse. He converses with her. He texts, he shares the message of the gospel with Lydia. And she hears the message, words being spoken about Jesus. Slave girl, not a whole lot of talking. It's in the name of Jesus. And the demon is cast out. And with the jailer, there's no conversation talking. There's no demon casting. You know what they do? Paul and Silas live out their life before him. And he sees, the jailer sees their lifestyle, if you want to say, whoa, what do I need to be saved? Message preached. Power encounter. We'll talk about power encounter next week, by the way. Okay? And third, living out your life and its beauty before the jailer. Can I just, just a little preview? Do you know why the jailer is blown away? He's a military guy. You know what's really important for him? Honor. Honor. Honor is important for him. What do Paul and Silas do? They could escape. They could flee. Doors open. They're innocent. What do they do? They say, ah, oh, we're not going anywhere. If we go, he's going to die. We're not going anywhere. He sees men living out what is a core value to him. Honor. And he says, what do I need to be saved? Three different approaches and ways in which the gospel is shared, okay? The gospel can't be canned. Paul adapts three different approaches, and it's a huge encouragement lesson for us in order to reach these very different people in Philippi. And we're going to talk about these three approaches as we go through this text. All right, let's talk about Lydia. All right, you ready? Michael, can you toss me that water, please? Let's talk about Lydia. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about who's Lydia? Why does she need to be converted? Okay, how was Lydia converted and what happened as a result of her conversion? Got it? Did you guys get that? So first is, <laughs> and y'all thought it was going to hit my head, didn't you? Like, oh my gosh, gosh, you caught it. Sorry for that. Who's Lydia? Why did she need to be converted? How was Lydia converted? And what happened as a result of her conversion? Okay, so here we go. Who's Lydia? She's the editor of Vogue. 
Okay? Sort of. She said, who is she? Who is she? Okay, look, look at the text. Look at the text. Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth. Don't you love that? Dealer in purple cloth. She came from a city called Thyatira. Archaeologists have done some study on the city of Thyatira, and they know that there was like an association or a guild of dyers. Okay? People who dyed cloth. And we know that Lydia was either a dyer herself or someone who traded in dyes. So she's a businesswoman, and she's probably really rich, really wealthy, you know? She's she lives in Chicago. She's got a home in Winneka. She's got a condo like on the Gold Coast, you know. She's got some vacation home, Michael, in Malibu. Pretty nice, eh? That's who Lydia is. Historians say that purple dye came from a single vein inside of a snail. That's where they got the dye from. And listen to this. Listen to this. <laughs> it required 200,000 snails for one ounce of dye. You think your job is bad? (laughs) Give me another one. Give me another one. Give me another one. Give me another one. How's work today, honey? Uh, It was okay. This is why dye was so, this is why purple was so expensive. It was royalty. Because 200,000 snails for one ounce of dye. Can you imagine that? 200,000 for one ounce to die. Okay, so we know that she's very, so, so, okay. So here's Lydia, wealthy businesswoman, successful retailer, fashion, luxury goods. She owns her own home. She's CEO of her company, okay? Second description of her, look at it, okay, is that she was a worshiper of God. Worshiper of God. Now, this is so critical, you guys. In other words, she's a Gentile who's following the tenets of Judaism. She's a Gentile who's following, in other words, she is reading the Old Testament. She is going to worship Okay, with a group of people, this Hebrew God of the Bible. She knows about the Mosaic law, and she's trying to follow the Mosaic law. Uh, the, another description that we find in the book of Acts about someone who was a worshiper of God was Cornelius in Acts 10, where it says he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously those in need and prayed to God regularly. In other words, listen carefully. Lydia is a deeply moral and spiritual person. Lydia is a deeply moral and spiritual person. She's faithfully reading the Hebrew Bible, trying to please and seek out the God of the Bible. Remember where Paul finds her. He finds her praying with a group of women and reading scriptures. Lydia is a moral, spiritual person. Here's what this means. And unless, 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 unless this penny drops, unless you and I realize what we, what we find in the profile of Lydia and how it's so important for us, Christian and not this morning actually, We're not going to have the life transformation that God desired for us. Christian conversion, Lydia shows us. Christian conversion is a necessity for everyone. Christian conversion is a necessity for everyone. What do I mean? The average person in Chicago hears somebody come and say, you need to be converted, okay? You need to be converted. Christian conversion. And I guarantee you, majority of the people that say you need to be converted, here's what they're hearing. They're saying, I need to be more moral. I, I need to, I need to be more religious. I need to, you know, go through moral reformation and I need to embrace more traditional moral values. That's what the average person hears because the average person in Chicago, when they hear conversion, thinks automatically, oh, so you want me to be a, a better person? You want me to be a, a good person? You want me to actually be more moral and more religious? Listen, you guys, look at the text carefully. Lydia is as moral as she can be. She's spiritual. She's reading the Bible. She goes to Sabbath Sunday regularly. She's probably volunteering at a shelter, probably giving generously to those who are in need. And yet Paul comes 
and preaches the gospel and she's converted. Why? Why? Let me put the principle up there and we'll flesh it out. The gospel is not religion. The gospel is a challenge to religion. The gospel is not religion. The gospel is a challenge to religion. This is the reason why Cornelius' story is in here and Lydia's story is in here. This is the reason why we find these stories. Do you remember John 3? John 3. We see Jesus with a guy named Nicodemus. Do you remember Nicodemus? He's a teacher of the law. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He is, in other words, another Lydia type. He is observing the law. He is Sabbath keeping. He is a moral, spiritual person. And he encounters Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? Oh, Nicodemus, incredibly moral. Incredibly religious. Incredibly doing well following the law. So, you you know, you just need kind of a touch up here and there. And you'll be fine. What does Jesus say? Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. It's an image of radical conversion. And he's, Jesus is audacity to save this guy who's a good person, moral person, Sabbath keeping, doing all the right things. And Jesus comes along and says, Nicodemus, not enough. You must be born again. Lydia, you're a good person. You're a worshiper of God. You go Sabbath. You read the Bible. You're a very good person. Observe all these things. So you just, you know, need to uh, uh, get this area of your act together better. No, Jesus The gospel comes along and says, you need to be converted. Listen carefully for your sake and for your friends as you share. When we say the gospel is a call to conversion, we are not saying to people become a better person, more moral, more religious, you know, do the right things in a better way. The gospel says you need to be born again. It's not religion. Gospel is a challenge to religion. We talk about this so often in our church. Some of you guys are going, not again. Not again, the gospel and religion. Not again. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Why this is so important. Why this is so important for many of you sitting here today who grew up in church or grew up in some religious faith or you didn't grow up, you know, in some religious tradition or faith, but, you know, you've done the right things. You're a good person. You're moral. The Bible is absolutely unflinching in saying that the essence of sin is not just that we do the wrong things and we break the law. We do the, the Bible says the essence of sin is that you and I want to place ourselves where God deserves to be. And there are two ways of doing that. Most of us think, place of God, we think about that person that's saying, you know what? Nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to trample people. I'm going to live my life the way I want to. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to lie. I'm going to do whatever the heck I want to. And nobody tells me what to do. I am my own man. I'm my own woman. I, I'm going to live this lie. And we think, yeah, that, that person definitely is in place where God is. Here's the other way we do it. The other way we put ourselves where God deserves to be is by being very good and very moral. Why? Our morality, our goodness becomes our means of salvation. It's how we avoid God. We're very good, very moral. And we say to God, God, because I'm good, because I'm moral, you don't have a claim on my life. I have a claim on you. So here's what I demand. Because I'm good, because I'm moral, because I'm following the rules and following the laws, right? God, watch, watch. So, so God, I'm in your place and I'm going to demand that you give me what I want. Remember, I'm good. I'm following the rules. So, so blessings, health, wealth, prosperity, what I want, that thing. And, and, and furthermore, because of my obedience to you, I don't want to get what I don't want. So I don't want hardship. I don't want suffering. I don't want trials. I don't want difficulties. 
And so our goodness and our morality is a way that we keep God at bay and say, God, you can't touch these areas of my life. For many of us, I'm speaking to you today, I grew up in church, our morality and our religion, I'm telling you, is a means of salvation. That's how we find our identity. So we keep God at bay. You tracking? So yes, that person, that person, see, this is the reason why, here's what I call you things. Conversion, yeah, it's for that guy who's strung out on drugs, you know, on skid row. That person, oh, he needs divine intervention. But me, I'm put together, I'm pulled together. Thank you very much. I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm all right. Just a little touch up, but I don't need conversion. And the whole time, we're using our morality, our goodness, to keep God at bay and saying, my salvation is that I'm good. I'm moral. So one way of salvation makes you licentious and does whatever the heck you want to. The other makes you self-righteous. And we go around saying, I'm better than other people. I'm more moral than other people. Or when we're not doing well, we get incredibly condemning of ourselves and guilty. We go, oh, woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. You know? You know? And then when we start doing better, oh, it's so, so subtle. But we start doing a little better. We start performing, you know, doing the right things. All of a sudden, that woe is me becomes woe is you. <laughs> so here's the thing. The gospel comes along and says, that person that is strung out on drugs and out there, you know, and just totally, totally wasting their life, they need to be converted. But you, who's right, moral, righteous, Oh, see, your need for conversion is even more acute because you don't even realize that you need conversion. You don't think you need it. Uh, I got this email from a fella in our church who's been, uh, God's been doing some amazing things in his life, right? And, and he had a conversation sharing about his faith with his sister-in-law who is a priestess, a Brahmin priestess, Okay? And so uh, this woman is like, Christianity, pfft, what's that all about? And this is email. Peter, my sister-in-law is the highest caste Hindu. She's a Brahmin. And aside from that, she's lived what appears to be a spotless life. Straight A's, grad school, prestigious teaching career, two perfect kids, a solid marriage. I don't you hate people like that. Like, Look, come on, give me some dirt. What's really going on, right? They're like, no, we're perfect. We're perfect. Perfect smile, perfect, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, and she's never even smoked a cigarette. Come on, everybody smoked a cigarette. You know what I mean? Even just to try it out. I did when I was like six years old, you know? I have a hard time believing nobody's tried cigarettes. Come on now. So I told her I was back in church, right? And challenged, and she challenged my decision, which caught me off guard. You know, that made me sometimes thinking about why I'm doing this. Why Christianity? And the answer I got is that we are the only religion where God's grace is available for the asking. We don't have to be reborn a bunch of times, do yoga, perform works, etc. I also realized that my sister-in-law is such a good person that it's harder for her to see the need for God's grace in her life. Ooh. And that I am blessed to have amplified my brokenness to the point where I could clearly see how much I need it. You and I agree that God's grace is for everybody. And I said I knew this because if it wasn't, I would surely not be a recipient. And that my experience helps me relate God's grace for all. So here's a, a test. 
You hear me say this morning, you need to be converted. And if your automatic response is, well, I'm pulled together. I'm all right. Maybe for him, her, that type, but, but I'm okay. I'm pulled together. You don't understand the gospel. And your need for the gospel is the most acute. Anyone who understands the gospel says that it is the person who says, I don't have it together. I'm lost. I'm hopeless. They're on their way. And anybody who says, I've got it together. I'm totally cool. Never smoked a cigarette in my life. Yeah, right. <laughs> Michael, you have smoked a cigarette. That's what I thought. Okay, that's what I thought. I just, just checking, just checking, you know, just checking. I'm looking at Michael going, even you have. Surely you must have. Okay, no. Michael, I went through half a pack. How many did you go through before you were like, this is so nasty? And I'm going to say, okay. Real serious, real quick, before I move on. Today is that Sunday when at the end, I'm actually going to give a gospel call, meaning I'm going to ask some of you guys to make a decision to perhaps cross that line today into not Christian religious, but a gospel-believing person. And especially talking to those of you who grew up in church, thinks of your entire view towards Christianity is Jesus Christ comes into my life so I can be a better person, moral person. And today, you're hearing for the first time saying, oh, 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 no, 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 no. It's about being born again through his work. And that may have never happened to you. We'll talk about that at the end. There's a great difference between moralism and the gospel. Christ did not come to make dead people Bad people, good, but to make dead people live. Okay, so let's, let's keep going. Okay, so how does the gospel come to Lydia? How does the gospel come to Lydia? Okay, second question. The gospel comes to Lydia through a rational discourse, a rational discourse. The text tells us that the, her heart was open to Paul's message. Paul engages her in a conversation about Jesus. I said this two weeks ago. I know for some of us, we want it to be so desperately true that we don't have to, you know, take the trouble to figure out how to communicate the gospel to our friends and family that they can sort of catch it, you know, once our lives are kind of infected with it, you know, people go, whoa, that's what... Paul, Lydia, Paul opens his mouth and he speaks words uh, to her. Jesus is... He, he tells... He tells her, <laughs> Romans 10, message, Romans 10, verse 12 to 14. This is Eugene Peterson's uh, translation. Everyone who calls out, help God, gets help. But how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they, how can they know who to trust if they have not heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? Paul opens his mouth and talks about Jesus. And what happens? The Bible says, then the, who, who opened her heart, by the way, you guys? Do you, guys, do you see that? Who opened Lydia's heart? Oh, you love it. Who? Who? The Lord. The Lord opened. Christian conversion, put this up there, is initiated by God himself. Is this an encouragement to anybody? This is such an encouragement to me because I can't tell you the number of times where I'm talking to somebody about Jesus and in my head I'm going, man, you're a pastor. You stink at this. 
I'm sharing. And not only that, but I've also seen times when the person's facial expression is there, like completely closed off, and they're like, and I'm going, God, this is a waste of time. I'm just going to. And all of a sudden, at the end of that, that person says, can you tell me more? The Lord opened her heart. On the one hand, listen carefully, Lydia didn't directly, directly call on God. There is not, you know, a vision from heaven, sound from heaven, but only through the audible preaching of the gospel by a human being. Paul had to communicate, talk, speak to her about Jesus. But on the other hand, neither Paul's words nor Lydia's heart is capable in themselves of making any connection. Her response is only possible because God comes and begins to speak. God comes and begins to open and that her heart becomes open. Lydia's heart was not opened because she responded to the gospel. She responded to the gospel because her heart became open. You guys, the Bible is absolutely categorical. Listen, listen carefully. The Bible, Romans 3 says, no one seeks God, not a single person. Romans 3. And the only reason why human beings actually seek God, because we don't have the capability of our own, the only reason why human beings seek God is because God is coming and seeking them. God is coming and searching after them and seeking after them. God is coming. The only reason why we search for God, the Bible says, is because God's come search for us. And this is why I've said three weeks in a row, I'm going to say it one more time. If you are a seeker, you're not a Christian, you're in here and you're going, Peter, I'm seeking God. I'm wanting to know God. I want to know who this God is. I've heard so much about it, but I don't know if I'll find him. I don't know if I'll be able to, you know, connect with him. I I say it again. The only reason why you will be discouraged is because you're giving yourself too much credit. The Bible says you're not capable of missing God. Oh, The only reason why you're aching and longing for God is because God's coming and longing and aching for you. So don't search with anxiety. A sense of his absence, where are you? Is a sign of his presence. Here I am. How does Lydia respond? The Bible says, the Lord opened her heart to respond. If you have a, if you have a, 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 a taking notes or marker, uh, put, put a little sign on that word response. Because the word response in Greek has a sense of to be attracted. To be attracted. You guys, everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. I want to show you what happened. I want to show you what happened. Not just here. I want to show you what happened. So here's Paul, right? Here's Paul. This is probably what happened. Rational discourse, right? And Lydia's hearing it, and she had an aesthetic experience. She hears it, she's like, oh, 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 that's, that's beautiful. That's what's going on. She's attracted. In other words, she hears it. It makes sense. It's coherent. Wow, that makes sense. And her response wasn't one of, okay, well, what do I need to be? No, she hears it. She's like, oh, oh, oh. I don't know what it would be for guys. I'd be like, oh, mm. Uh, I don't know. It's the same thing, Cynthia, you know, deeper voice. Mm. I don't know. But in other words, she has an aesthetic experience. Now watch, and I'll tell you why that's important. So here's probably what happened. Paul goes to this place, and Paul says, so ladies, ladies, so ladies, uh, Lydia, what are you learning? What are you learning? And Lydia goes, Lydia goes, well, well, Paul, let me tell you. Let me tell you about what I'm learning, okay? Uh, I'm learning, as, as I read the Hebrew Bible, that, that God made a promise to a guy named Abraham, right? This is Abraham. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. 
That's pretty cool. And I'm also learning that God calls a guy named Moses, right? God calls him Moses, and God gives this guy Moses, like the law, the Ten Commandments. And man, the Ten Commandments, they're pretty phenomenal, but man, they're kind of hard to do. Paul goes, I know, all my life, I tried, I know, I know. And, and, then, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then Lydia goes, and I also learned about the sacrificial system, you know? There's a sacrificial system and the tabernacle, all these things. A little mysterious, but it makes sense because we try to live out the law, but we can't, right? We fall short, right? We fall short. So God set up this intricate system where for those who fall short, we bring animal sacrifices and we atone for our sin. And it's at that time that Paul would have been something like this. Paul would have been like, let me tell you what that's about. It's all about Jesus. What? It's all about Jesus. Let me tell you what the whole Bible is about, Lydia. And the rest of the women, Paul goes, here's what the whole Bible is about. You know that guy, that guy Abraham, the God said was going to bless all the nations through one of his descendants? It happened through Jesus. Jesus comes as a fulfillment, descendant of Abraham, and he fulfills the whole law, and the whole earth is blessed through him. Oh, and the Mosaic law? Yeah, so here's what God did. God, God sends Jesus, and you know the laws that were impossible to fulfill? Guess what? Jesus Christ comes, and he lives the perfect life, perfect righteous life. He obeys all the commandments. He does everything right. Can you believe that? He does everything right. Really? Yeah. And so he earns for himself the blessing that such a life deserves. But there's one more thing. You know, the sacrificial atonement thing? That, yeah, yeah, what's that all about? Oh, Jesus Christ also becomes the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God? The Lamb of God, see? Because at the end of his life, you know what Jesus does? He sacrifices his life. He goes to the cross and he dies on the cross for the sins of all of humanity. He takes the curse that we all deserve. So Paul looks at Lydia and says, so here's the deal. Jesus Christ lives a life that we should have lived, right? And he earns the blessing for us. And then he dies the death that we should have died. He takes our curse and goes to the cross. So here's the thing. When you put your trust in Christ, the life that he lived, perfectly righteous life, that comes to you. <gasps> yeah. Like I don't have to do. No, 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 no. Faith, faith. And, and the curse, the curse, the death that I should have died. No, no, you don't have to die anymore. See, see, because Christ died your death. And then Paul says, the whole Bible, see, Every prophet, every priest, every king, every majestic lord, every sacrifice, every lamb, everything points to Jesus. And Lydia and her friends are hearing this, right? And they're like, he, he did that? Yeah, he did that. And her response wasn't one of, oh, that's cool. All right, let's go. Her response was one of, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And Lydia goes through this transition that is critical for some of us in this room tonight or today. And, and that's this, this, this. Listen, listen. Lydia, before this time, is devout. She's Bible-believing. She's doing all the right things. She's a good person, a worshiper of God. And then she has an aesthetic experience of the gospel. She years ago goes, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And, and what's the difference between what well, you say? Well, why is that important? Because all of her life up until this point... Lydia approaches God. Lydia approaches religion like many of us, which is God is useful. I, I obey God to get things. I obey God because my obedience results in X amount of things. I obey God because oh, by obeying God, I get to go to heaven. I obey God because when I obey God, then he accepts me. I obey God because by doing that, then I become favored with God. I, I obey God because God is useful. She hears the gospel, and God is no longer useful. Jesus Christ becomes what? Beautiful. Jesus becomes beautiful. 
And Lydia no longer obeys God because he's useful. Lydia no longer is obeying God to get the things. Lydia all of a sudden says, why would I obey God to get stuff when I've got the only thing that matters? Jesus. Y'all can clap to that if you want to. There's one person going, Jesus, you know, that's pretty nice. No, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. So here's what happens. And here's how, no, you've been converted. It's C.S. Lewis and Reflection of the Psalms. What does he say? C.S. Lewis and Reflection of the Psalms is so powerful. C.S. Lewis says, when you hear beautiful music or you hear a beautiful piece of art, what do you do? You got to grab somebody and go, look. Can you believe this? Look at the lines. Look at the nose. Look at the nose. Listen to the notes. Look at the beautiful. Look at this piece of art. And you know what? You don't go and praise that art. Listen, because it makes you feel better. You praise it. Because it deserves praise in and of itself. We don't praise that people. Nobody goes to the... We Americans would go to the Grand Canyon to boost our self-esteem. We go to Grand Canyon and go, amazing. I feel so much better about myself. But that's what we've done with God. That's what we've done with God. He is the creator of the world, the most beautiful, the most amazing, amazing thing creator of the world, who dies for us, saves us, redeems us, and we go to God to feel better about ourselves instead of going to God and saying, oh my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. And I don't praise you because you need it, just like Grand Canyon doesn't need my praise because it needs it. I praise you because you deserve praise in and of yourself. <gasps> That's Lydia. She comes to God and she says, Oh, I don't need you. I don't do this because I get something. I come and I praise you just for you. Conversion. Conversion. How many times have we gone to God? Just like we would go to the Grand Canyon saying, I want to feel better. How many times must we go to God without just simply being in his presence and saying, you are amazing. The dynamic for growth spiritually is when we come face to face with this truth that if the gospel has gripped your heart, You go to God and simply to say, I praise you because you're praiseworthy. When's the last time you just, you know, (laughs) went to God and said, God, I don't need nothing. I don't, you know, I I obey to, you know, I just, And the picture I have right now is, is you and me standing on the bottom of the Niagara Falls. And the Niagara Falls is the eternal, unconditional love of God. 1 John 3, we are called the beloved children of God, for that is what we are. And John says, for he has lavished When's the last time you just, you know, 
At the bottom of the Niagara Falls of God's majesty, just said, God, I'm blown away by your gospel. I'm blown away. I'm blown away. Don't you want that? I do. I want that so much. Uh, I'm actually going to end the sermon here because I need to do this today before I move on. See, as I pray for you this week, the Lord, Holy Spirit spoke and said, Peter, there are people in the congregation, in your church, who are going to be there that Sunday who've been on this journey. And they may have grown up in church, been to church things, but they're going to be there, and they have yet to experience the gospel that it's not about morality and religion, how well we do, but it's about the fact that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life for us and dies our death so that when we trust him, his righteousness, his perfect life becomes deposited literally to us. And we become as acceptable to God as his son Jesus is. And this morning, and this morning, um, we do this in our church. We do this, don't get, you know, don't, uh, we do this in our church. We, we, we don't turn off the lights, all this stuff. I, I simply just obedient to God and saying, you know, I just simply say, there are those of you out there today, there are those of you out there that you came with a friend because they invited you, and, and you, you're out there today, and, and you may consider yourself a religious person, you know, a person who does good things, but you don't consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, because you have yet to, listen very carefully, say to God, God, I believe that you have lived the life that I should have lived. I can't do that. And you died the death I should have died. I certainly can't do that. And I've trust. I place my trust, my weight, my life on that truth. And so it's not about me striving and earning, but it's about what you've done, what you've done. And furthermore, as I used to say, and, and, and I, I, I repent of being the God of my life. I repent of taking your place and trying to run my life the way I want to. So not only do I believe what you have done, but I repent. In other words, I I make, I choose this day to say, I will follow you. You are God. You are Lord. I'm done running my own kingdom. And the Bible says that the promise is not only forgiveness and cleansing of sin, but adoption into his family as a child of God. Where you join a community of people, men and women, who also say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Anybody thankful for God's amazing grace in their lives? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. 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 And church, as you leave this place today, my prayer is that throughout this week, as you go seek God, that you would stand under the Niagara Falls of his unconditional love and mercy pouring over you and over you and over you and over you. And that you would stand before God and you would simply be amazed and in awe at his beauty, at his majesty, at his glory. Not seeking him for things, but seeking him for who he is. Be blown away by his beauty. Be blown away by his majesty. Be blown away by our God. For in that, you will be 
the kind of witness that God can use for his kingdom. He is before you. He is behind you. He is beside you. Fall in love with him passionately again and again and again. See him anew. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all the God's people said, amen. Have a great week, you guys. Have a great, great week.